0: This is a podcast for functional ecology at British Ecological Society publication. Hello, today I'm really excited to have Phoebe Griffith with me. She is from the Institute of Zoology and the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit at the University of Oxford. Today we're going to be talking about her paper uh, using functional traits to identify conservation priorities for the world's crocodilians. This paper is Due to feature in one of our Animal Functional Traits special focus um, issues. So hello Phoebe, it's great to have you here.
1: Hi, fantastic, thanks for having me on.
0: So uh, I'd just like to ask you, as we always do on these podcasts, to tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from? What are your research interests? How did you get into ecology and then how did you come to study crocodiles?
1: Yeah, so um, I've always had uh, a huge interest in in wildlife, Um, particularly I grew up in Nepal, and so I was very lucky to see the sort of incredible diversity um, um, of wildlife that was in the country. So um, that led to me studying biology and then um my particular interest is conservation because uh kind of inevitably Mm -hmm. uh, when when looking around at the species I was interested in I found that most of the ones that I was fascinated by such as crocodilians and other freshwater megafauna species most of them weren't doing terribly well um so I uh, worked a little bit in in conservation with a bit of research and then Started this project I currently work on, um, which is working with our partners in the Nepal government, looking at the conservation of a species called the gharial in Nepal, which is a very very weird looking crocodilian. Um, And yeah, we kind of started this project because the Nepal government has been running a a conservation program on gharial for for a number of years since the late 70s, but the population still remains critically endangered. Uh, so there was a need for a kind of science focused approach to try and understand the reasons behind that. So that was how I sort of first got involved with crocodilians. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never looked back. And then um, having started looking at a single species, that's what got me really interested in more of a kind of comparative approach asking why is this species so critically endangered when other crocodilian populations have completely recovered from being endangered in the past Um, and looking at this group of species we have this huge variations in extinction risk and conservation status Um, so that then got me asking some of the kind of bigger questions in ecology and conservation. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, So I'd just like to ask about the gorille in particular because that's what started off this journey for you um so you talked about it being critically endangered um can you tell the listeners what what has led to this is this anthropogenic is what how, how has this been caused
1: yeah so um essentially what kind of happened um in the in the kind of 50s and 60s internationally was most crocodilian populations uh, started being really, really, really heavily hunted for their skins, and this was in a world that was post-World War II. There were a lot of men coming back from from fighting who knew how to use firearms, who had access to these new developments in technology like motorboats and 4x4s, um, who had these, um, so a crocodile's protection is they're incredibly cryptic they're very difficult to see and all that is undermined the second you get a powerful electric torch mm-hmm. because if you shine that in a wetland they have this very reflective layer at the back of their eyes which helps them see in the dark but it means that their eyes just shine yeah. kind of like cats like cats eyes um so and then it's very easy to see where their head is and kill them so most crocodilians around the world had their populations really really heavily hunted um and at the same time um, and kind of quite difficult in hindsight to disentangle from this hunting was the sudden big, uh, development projects going on that were, uh, damming rivers, moving rivers, you know, uh, doing larger scale fishing in rivers. And so there was suddenly all these habitat modifications and impacts. And so croc populations worldwide just collapsed. Um, and with a lot of the hunted species, then legal trade, um, which is still in place came in. And so crocs now are mostly um you know their skin is collected legally and so there's no uh or very little pressure on them uh in the wild for uh, an illegal trade so most of those populations that got hunted recovered the gharial didn't um and it seems that it was because it wasn't the hunting that had really impacted it it was these other river modifications mm-hmm. so in particular one of the i guess the two big things that correlate with the the disappearance of gurial and their inability to recover in the 50 years since has been this building of dams and barrages that are fragmenting the rivers they live in and the development of these, um, uh, destructive fishing methods, Mm. like using gill nets, which are synthetic, uh, nets made from synthetic fibers that entangle and drown a whole range of different freshwater species, including gurial.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. And, um, one thing I wanted to ask is just about, because we're going to be talking about the diversity and functional traits of crocodiles. So, you know, they're they're very, I mean, this seems quite churlish to say, but they're quite old. <laughs> but the diversity isn't as sort of prominent as you would see in something like birds or other sort of very long living sort of species that we associate with the dinosaurs. Have they? Can you dig into that a little bit for me?
1: This- yeah, so it's because we had, are at a snapshot in time right now where there are very few croc species. There's probably uh, around 28 at the moment. Mm-hmm. That number's changing as people look at the genetics and find that what they thought were a single species were actually populations that have diverged millions of years ago. But they look quite similar, and that's because um, what we got we are left with today is sort of a remnant of the the historical croc uh Biodiversity. So, even just a few million years ago, you have everything from um, the kind of crocodiles we have today, but in the past, there have been marine or completely marine crocodiles, um, arboreal crocodiles, so crocodiles that can climb trees wow. um, potentially right up until a few thousand years ago. You have species that um, would be fully terrestrial and would run down their prey. Um, and if you go far enough back, you have herbivorous ones as well. So there has been this huge diversity in the past. And then um, generally sort of looking at the kind of history of crocodilian forms in warmer periods of history, we get a big diversity. And then in the cooler periods like the ice age that the world has just come out of, you get this cutting down and you suddenly have the crocodiles retreating back to this perfect design of these amphibious predators. um, That is the kind of the form that, There's always there's always crocs like that. There's no other species that's kind of nailed this amphibious predator niche like crocodilians Mm -hmm. have. So in a time like today, where we're at a low diversity in kind of evolutionary time, we're ending up with just this kind of one basic type. But then what we were looking at in our study was actually. People think of. Crocodiles or alligators, as all being quite similar, but they're actually startlingly different um, just because they look quite similar to the human eye, but their behaviors are hugely different. So, the Chinese alligator, for example, is a tiny little species, mostly eats, you know, mollusks and uh, so, like, snails and other hard shells organisms and crustaceans, and is, it digs these massive burrows that it lives in and can cope with very cold temperatures. Um, at the complete opposite end of the scale, you've got a six plus meter saltwater crocodile that makes transoceanic journeys of hundreds of kilometers and can take down a cow if it's a fully grown adult. So, um, and is, you know, very saltwater tolerant, whereas the Chinese alligator today is only found in freshwater mm-hmm. climate uh, uh, habitats. So, um, yeah, they, they don't have the historical diversity we used to see, but they're still pretty diverse.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Right. So, just before we talk about the paper, I'd just like to ask if you have any advice for any young budding ecologists, um, any sort of tips and tricks of the trade?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely, I think, I I mean, it's been said a million times, but really focus on doing what you love. Um, I think my realization of that was I was doing a very interesting project um, in Panama for my undergrad, uh, looking at um, entomology. And um kept getting distracted because every time there was any sort of crocodilian at the field site, I found I could sit for eight hours trying to watch what the crocodilian was doing, and there was eight hours behind on what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and so I wasn't really getting very far with my sort of entomology career, but it made me realize that actually a lot of ecology is spending a lot of time on a single thing, and if you don't love that, you could get very bored. Mm-hmm. Um, so finding the thing that you can you kind of don't have a boredom threshold for um it's really important and i guess the other thing is always just asking people people are great mm-hmm. especially in ecology and conservation almost every collaboration project thing i've done has just been kind of getting in touch with someone completely cold just like finding them like, i read your paper it was great i wondered if you had any opportunities or um or you wanted to help me design this part of my project um and yeah just asking everyone people don't reply some people do reply and yeah i think there's no need to kind of hesitate with just getting in touch and asking for help
0: wonderful thank you yeah casting a wide net always good um except for when fishing in crocodile waters i presume
1: (laughs) yes that's
0: always (laughs) so um yeah i mean that's really interesting because i think something that's always said about ecologists is that most of them came from really enjoying bird watching so the fact that you got to grow up in this environment where you got to observe gharials and be in a really beautiful sort of ecosystem and environment is um it's wonderful that you've sort of taken that initial sort of childlike wonder at it and followed through uh, right through in your career so um just before we start with the next question I'm very excited to say that phoebe has brought some sound recordings so perhaps you could just introduce what they are don't give it away too early let's see if the listeners can work it out first and then we'll do a little explanation of what they are afterwards
1: yeah so um these are, are two recordings that have um very kindly been shared with me uh of two vastly different crocodilians um but two of the species that got flagged in our analysis as being particularly unusual having quite unusual ecological roles compared to other crocodilians and um yeah this so this is two different crocodilians flirting essentially
0: Wonderful. we'll play that for the listeners now Phoebe, can you reveal what, what we were listening to and explain what's going on?
1: Absolutely. So the first recording uh, was an adult male gurial, and that was recorded by Jailab Dean from the Gurial Ecology Project in the Wild in India. And the gurial has this very unusual um, growth on the end of the snout of adult males so as they start to mature this this growth called the gara it's what they're named after gets bigger and bigger and bigger and males who have this are able to make that that sort of percussive noise that was at the start of the recording that's called a pop and jai's been studying this and um, found that the pop is used for a variety of things from talking to their babies their fantastic parents to um uh, threatening other males to what we heard just then, which was flirting with females. So those are the noises that he makes as part of his courtship routine. So while that kind of, he pops up um, next to the female and makes that popping noise, and then those kind of longer, hissing, growling sounds he does while doing a sort of water dance to try and impress her. And generally the males spend a lot of time doing this and they spend a lot of time getting ignored. And then very, very occasionally a female (laughs) will be won over by this, this routine or the 19th time she's seen this routine, um, which is, yeah, absolutely amazing to see. Um, and then the second recording, that kind of really deep dinosaur, almost sounding, um, uh, noise, um, was from Stefan uh, Reba with some of the, uh, alligators from his, uh, his lab. He has a number of alligators that they do, um, work with to understand their intelligence and communication. Um, and, um, this is uh, alligators, the kind of famous noise they make, this is a bellow. So the bellows are these really, really deep noises. A lot of it can't be heard by the human ear. Um, And in fact, the the frequency is so low that they create these kind of Faraday waves, which means the water dances on the male's back, um, which is really cool. Um, So, yeah, alligators bellow, so do other crocodiles. In fact, most crocodiles are really chatty. Um, They spend a lot of time communicating with each other, particularly for courtship. Um, And both males and females um, make these kind of hissing and bellowing noises and people only just starting to understand exactly what these mean. Um, by eavesdropping on them.
0: Wow, fantastic! Yeah, I think it's it's something that most people probably, am you know, I certainly didn't um, know just how vocal they can be. Um, so I just wanted to ask. I mean, this is putting you on the spot here, but um, with the dancers and with the with the sounds, um, do we know as of yet what could potentially? Separate the wheat from the chaff. You know what? What? What makes a good dance? What makes a good sound? What, what is there a kind of?
1: Yeah. So scale? there was um, so Stefan who shared the um, the alligator recording with me. They did a, a pretty fun study um, in which they were uh, giving, uh, looking at how size of the alligators related to the to the sounds they could make. So so bigger. Um, bigger alligators being able to make a sort of deeper noise and therefore it's kind of an honest signal to the females of being like I'm the biggest I'm the best um mate with me and so they gave them helium um so that suddenly these bigger alligators were making a much higher noise and so um that was a way of yeah it seems like these could be ways of particularly um demonstrating to the females that these are these are big males they've got this big adult size which means they probably have good genes but also that they're going to be uh, kind of good at holding their territory potentially good parents so particularly for gurriel again these bigger males that develop these bigger garas um can make these louder pop sounds and um this particularly important for Gurriel because the males play a really, really key role in, um, in parenting. And so a, a big, a big male is going to look after all the females babies and do a really mm-hmm. good job of it. Nothing. There is nothing. I mean, a big male, Gurriel is six meters. There is nothing that is going to threaten us, you know, an individual of that size. So mm-hmm. by picking the biggest best male, the female, um, has probably got a, a better chance of her hatchling surviving so that's yeah some of the kind of ideas going around at the moment but it's still an area that needs more research
0: yeah fascinating right well we'll, we'll get to the paper now so I'd just like to ask uh can you in sort of plainish terms explain the novelty of your paper what does it contribute to our understanding of crocodilian functional traits and um how does it sort of advance our understanding of how to conserve this these species
1: yeah, so um, crocodilians are pretty hard to study in the wild. Um, they're hard to find. They're very cryptic. Mm-hmm. They spend a lot of time under the water. And a lot of species can be, um, if you're unlucky, they can be quite dangerous. Um, and so... One of the techniques developed primarily initially by botanists was to use, um, although plants generally not quite so dangerous, um, but it's to use a functional trait approach. So these are measurable traits. Um, if, uh, if In the case of crocodiles, these were things like uh, male maximum size, female size, um, reproductive parameters, a measure of skull shape, a measure of the different types of habitats they use, how they can move over land. Um, and so by Collecting all these traits for every individual crocodile species, we can put them together and kind of estimate the ecological role of each species. So, you know, a species that can't travel overland and has a really long, thin skull um, and is only found in very specific aquatic habitats is going to have quite a different ecological role to a species that spends half its life on the rainforest floor, can be found anywhere, and has this little short Uh, stubby skull, more capable of kind of a generalist diet. So by doing this, we were then able to um, sort of quantify the differences between species ecological roles and their similarities. So we could find these kind of clusters of functionally similar species, um, not necessarily closely related ones, but ones that were likely to be performing the same ecological role in their environment, even if they were found kind of on different continents. And also to be able to highlight those species which were completely unique, that, you know, there's nothing else quite like them. So um, in particular, you know, the number one one was the gurial. There's kind of no other croc species that's popping at females and having these kind of massive communal crashes and um, going to a massive size whilst only pretty much eating fish and other aquatic prey. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, this enabled us to kind of... uh, quantify these these groupings and differences, and therefore this could be useful for informing how we're studying them, um, how, trying to understand these roles, but also how we're trying to conserve them. Um, and as part of that, we highlighted the most unusual species that are also at a really, really high risk of extinction um, and being lost as those kind of really irreplaceable species. Whereas if we let them go extinct in the wild, there's gonna be just nothing left like them on earth today.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Um, so just just to um, follow up with that, uh, in the paper, you identify key species for conservation action, as well as discussing how complementary those section, those selections are with other types of con- conservation prioritisation. How does that translate to on the ground recommendations for conservation?
1: Yeah, so um, kind of one of the, the big questions inevitably in conservation is there's always limited resources. So how do we prioritize which species you know funders or organizations are gonna are gonna focus on because we can't focus on everything. Um and so we had flagged these kind of really functionally distinctive species. Um and we wanted to ask well how does this tally up with the other ways people have been prioritizing species? Is this kind of are we wasting our time looking at all these different aspects when we could kind of just use one quick and easy measure and go for that instead. And so the one we're particularly interested in was, um, the, the, uh, phylogenetic diversity. So the, the diversity of the tree of life and a measure mm-hmm. called edge, which is looking at the evolutionary distinctive and globally endangered species. So species that represent a whole branch on the tree of life, you know, often, represented by just one or two species that at, threaten you know at risk of being lost um and what we found that was pretty interesting was that a lot of these species that are very uh evolutionary distinctive they're kind of weird have no close living species as relatives um were the same ones that were having these really unique functional roles in the environment. So we found there was a lot of complementarity, and so these schemes already in place, uh, like the EDGE program, which are focusing on conserving these very unusual species. From an evolutionary perspective, we're also doing a pretty good job at capturing a lot of those species um, that are likely to have an irreplaceable functional role. Um, we didn't find, however, this was always the case. We kind of found that the other end of the spectrum, we had a lot of these functionally. Uh, unique species were ones that had a lot of close living relatives and had had this kind of uh, speciation in recent years so particularly the true crocodiles is the big group of um what you kind of think of when you think of a crocodile um they only diversified around 10 million years ago and yet they're on every sort of tropical continent um of the world and so um we found that a lot of them were really unique and that seems to have been being driven by this kind of recent evolution pushing species to kind of evolve more quickly um, mm-hmm. and so in terms of kind of practical recommendations they're saying that when you are able to measure the functional diversity that's a really useful measure but where it's not possible for example in a lot of freshwater species or ones where there's too many that the uh, looking at the tree of life is a pretty good proxy measure um
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, So the last part of this question I wanted to ask was that you and your team identified Asia as a hotspot of threatened croc species. Um, I know we've spoken already about the sort of dam and river sort of manipulation as being one of the key issues there. but. Based on this information, what can be done to facilitate conservation of wetland and river ecosystems in Asia to protect crocs? Is it about relocation? Is it how how, how do we how do we do this once we've actually changed the actual landscape itself through these downing projects?
1: Yeah. So it's um, yeah, it's kind of all populations of crocodilians in Asia are are threatened in some way um, and. Um, because of these sort of huge impacts on rivers almost everything if you think about so much of human society worldwide a lot of it focuses on rivers so they tend to be the most impacted part of the system and especially when you've got a lot of fast development happening um you can end up with uh huge amounts of pollution over exploitation mm-hmm. removal of species um and so And the thing about rivers is it's, you know, it's a connected system. What happens upstream is going to impact what happens downstream. So I think, um, I mean, all over the world, but especially in Asia, it's thinking about the river ecosystem as a whole as something to be conserved for the sake of biodiversity, um, for the sake of human health, because these rivers are so important, often to river dependent communities who um, can often be marginalized and not necessarily considered by large scale infrastructure decisions being made at the international level. Um, And yeah, so it's thinking about the the river as a as a living thing that we want to conserve for biodiversity for people, and not just as a source of you know hydroelectric power irrigation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there's going to have to be a big a big shift um, to focusing on conserving the kind of whole river system, um, and and all the different parts that make up the that ecosystem. You know, we don't know what impact it's going to have if. There are no more crocodiles or large fishes or river dolphins in rivers, but it's likely going to be negative for the functioning of the river um, or the Mm -hmm. wetland system. Um, And I think particularly with climate change and with unpredictability of weather, natural kind of nature based solutions to managing flood risk um, and these kind of things such as by wetland restoration are going to be really important and inevitably if that's happening in Asia if we want to do wetland restoration and restore the the historical species that's probably going to involve reintroduction of crocodiles because they're gone from most places that they used to be found in Um, Mm -hmm. which is an exciting opportunity um, at the same time as being a big challenge
0: yeah okay yeah thank you for that so uh, I, I kind of wanted to talk about the germination of, it, of the idea of your article um, and why you felt compared to share this with the ecological community, but I feel like we might have covered that already. So perhaps if there's anything else you want to say on it, do let me know. Yeah,
1: is there is there no, anything I... else
0: that you feel you want to talk about on that?
1: I guess just in terms of sort of how it initially came about was... Mm-hmm. Um, Sort of working in Nepal, you've got these two the gurriel, I've spoken really at length about, but you've also got the mugger crocodile, and these live in the same environments as the gurriel. And so we're there doing our project on gurriel, and at the same time, we're seeing without that much directed conservation, the mugger populations are recovering really well, they're nesting everywhere. Um, and I was very curious as to what exactly was going on, um, and so I that was kind of one of the first things that's got us thinking about it and thinking about the differences between species. Because um, things like people be like, yeah, yeah, we found some mugger footprints in the middle of the jungle, in the dry season, yeah. miles from the nearest water body. Or um, one of the wardens said, yeah, yeah, we see the muggers, you know, coming up and walking up the highway and then getting back in the river that's... further up. Whereas Gurriel can't really get out of the water very well. They can't walk um, like other crocodiles. And so, um, yeah, it, this kind of was what made me start thinking about how these species are actually really, really different. Um and then yeah, snowballed into every species.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well yeah, it's a wonderful article. And just before I move on to one of the last questions, I'd like to point out the um Edge of Existence blog post that I think you and your co-author Ricky Gums authored. Um it's got a great title, Crying Crocodile Tears, The Disappearing Diversity of Crocodilians and Their Ecological Roles. Um, I found it to be a fascinating, wonderful resource um, for learning about your research. And it's got some amazing pictures of all the different crocodiles. Crocodiles that you couldn't even dream of sort of thinking about or conceiving. You know, um, the shape of them and their their sort of um, body types and the size its it's remarkable. Um, So I will leave a link to that in the description of this podcast that people can check that out as well. Um, So one of the final questions I'd like to ask you is uh, where do you think the research should be directed towards? Where should it be moving towards next?
1: Yeah, so I think from our paper, there's kind of two main recommendations for moving forward. The first is a much more ecological one, and that's saying that these crocodiles seem to have these very diverse ecological roles um, and really calling for more research into this. So trying to understand... How is it that crocodilians is these huge um predators in these systems? How are they involved in ecosystem engineering or nutrient um you know management or um any of these sort of different processes? These have been investigated quite well in terrestrial apex predators like wolves um, or even marine ones um like with orcas, but um crocs haven't had that level of field research. So that's a really exciting uh, and challenging ecological question. And then the other side is the more applied conservation one. And it's saying, you know, this is this is urgent. These species are are disappearing and um, many of them are gone from most of their former range. You know, they're not totally extinct, but they're not doing these ecological roles in 98, 99 percent sometimes of their former range and so um calling for more uh, conservation action and uh more uh, sort of applied um applied research to understand what interventions do and don't work and um, so that and then sharing this open access with everyone um so everyone can kind of pull together um for crop mm-hmm. conservation.
0: Wonderful and at, in Nepal where you were studying the gorillas, is there Can you see action happening on the ground at that point? Has that sort of, has the ball started rolling or?
1: Absolutely. So um, the Nepal government and the Chitwan National Park set up a conservation program way back in the 1970s. Um, So real kind of trailblazing conservation work to focus, particularly focusing on a a reptile. Um, So not necessarily the kind of charismatic species like a rhino or tiger that usually takes centre stage. Um, And... Um, the wonderful thing we found with the research that my team and myself have been doing this kind of uh, the science and ecology to underline understand why some of these conservation interventions don't work everyone has been really interested that ngos working there the the national park staff you know we share all our data and results with them and um they're immediately thinking, okay, well, how can, how can we change this to improve it? You know, we said, Oh, we think you need to release Gurriel further upstream. That would have a better chance of them surviving their first monsoon. And so that was tried this year. Um, so, um, not only that, but, um, we like to share things like the audio recording I played you earlier and videos of the fantastic parental care that Gurriel do. And we share these with interest groups from the local community, um, because these are, you know, these are their Gurriel, they're living in their rivers mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, it's just wonderful to see, you know, some of these community based forest groups are setting up their own um, burial conservation work um, or asking us, you know, oh, what, what research are you thinking of doing next? And we've told them and they said, oh, well, we want to lead on that instead, which is incredible. And obviously it's like, yeah, absolutely. This is this mm-hmm. is your this is your river. This is what we've learned. Run with it. Um, so, yeah, um, entirely positive, um, which has been incredibly uplifting.
0: Yeah. Amazing news. So I, I I won't, I don't want to bring it down too much, but I'd like you to, nobody likes it when I ask them to do this, which is probably why I keep asking them to do it. Uh, I'd like you to get your crystal ball out for me and describe a future, um, or what the future looks like at present for crocodiles. So one thing that, um, I wanted to know about is, you know, crocs throughout history have re-diversified. They've bounced back from two past mass extinctions, um, is there anything unique about the anthropocene that might mean their characteristic characteristic resilience might not suffice it might it might not be enough
1: i think that we've got a really re, what's going on in the anthropocene and the the impacts of humans creating current mass extinction is just so different from anything we've seen historically to kind of compare to the 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 most recent previous mass extinction the one that wiped out the dinosaurs and crocs had no problem with they just sailed through that um mm-hmm. a big part of that is their river species um and kind of uh, river river systems are generally driven a lot by detritus and when the world is ending around a river and all that dead matter is ending up in a river actually the river is the best place to be um so mm-hmm. um they in a way those rivers potentially were some kind of sort of refugia a place where crocodilians that were found in rivers were safe um uh, most croc species are prolific burrow diggers as well. So they also dig these massive burrows. The the biggest burrows currently dug in the animal kingdom are dug by crocodiles. Um, So uh, Um, they can also hide away in those. Um, And so I think, whereas this kind of complete opposite today, whereas where all these new threats, this pollution, this over-exploitation, this removal of water, they're all centered on rivers. So instead of rivers being a safe space, rivers are the absolute, rivers and sort of inland coastal areas, the other place you get crocs, some croc species, are in fact the most impacted. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's it's going to be, the question is, are crocs going to, be able to to survive current levels of impact before hopefully we start to recover some of these systems. You know, if you think about the wetlands in the UK, obviously no crocodiles, but so many of them historically have been drained. And now, only now, are people starting re- to restore and rewild these in the UK. Um, if it takes this kind of that long to, to to start restoring wetlands in other parts of the world, then it's challenging to know how crocs will cope. Um, but a lot of species are pretty resilient. They mm-hmm. the, China, the fact the Chinese alligator isn't extinct is the most mind-boggling thing ever because it lives in the most impacted hyper-agricultural areas of China. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, they're still there, just a few. Um, but Just in the edges of fields, in duck ponds, just, just on the edge. And I think that if the species just hold on, um, then there's the potential to kind of reintroduce them to certain areas in the future. Um, so, um, and I think that there's a lot of history surrounding crocodiles. A lot of cultures have stories, uh, cultural importance, folklore surrounding crocodilians. And so um, a lot of people want to conserve crocodiles and are interested in them, um, which is a huge asset for um, for people who want to conserve them for perhaps more ecological reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that actually ties into the last question I wanted to ask, which is aside from the ecological roles identified as a key aspect of crocodilians to conserve, um, why do you think conservation of crocodilians is so important outside of the ecological um, sort of purview?
1: Yeah, so um, I just love them. I think they're really, really fascinating. And I, I've always, you know, sort of growing up as a child, um, thinking about those species which have gone extinct Um because of human activities, always made me really sad and 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 angry as a sort of eight, nine, ten year old, being like, I really wanted mm-hmm. to see the Baiji, the Yangtze River dolphin, but it had just gone extinct. Um, and 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 similarly, these kind of other species like the thylacine that people continue to have this massive interest in. And I think that if we if we lost crocodile species, we are losing something that is just on the one level just fascinating
0: mm-hmm. and.
1: On the second level losing this kind of associated culture and folklore and you know for some people the, certain crocodiles are a totemic animal um for other people there's a lot of uh belief that uh the crocodile is is, is our ancestor um in other places it's simply just the the focus of, of folklore and other types of storytelling and um, work on other species has shown how a lot of these beliefs and, and understandings and things that are really important for understanding our own cultural and personal histories as humans, which is, of course, vitally mm-hmm. important, are um, tied into sort of certain species. And so I think if we if we lose crocodiles, we lose the ecological role, but we also lose the 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 cultural role they have as well. Um, and I think that would just be I think it would just be really sad.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed, they're. I think they're they're one of the animals that probably inspire kids a lot. I don't know if they they lose that yeah. uh, as they grow, and they they prefer the the cuddliness of other animals or whatever. But I think you know, just the the power, they're sort of they're very animate, and strong, and big, and large. It's it's sort of symbolic, sort of a touchstone, yeah. isn't it? If they were to go, it would be. I feel it would be a loss that would be felt um, very strongly.
1: absolutely and i think i was gonna say i think it's also you know there's certain species we'll probably never lose they're really secure saltwater crocodile american alligator nile crocodile but Mm. some of these more unusual species are the ones that are at risk and so it would be a real shame if we're only left with kind of one type of crocodile rather than um yeah rather than the kind of diversity we have Mm
0: -hmm. indeed well, there's hope. There's still hope yet, there is. as you have clearly showed. That's wonderful news. Um, so just to wrap up, is there anything you'd like to say, uh, any thanks you'd like to give to any of any, anyone, collaborators, contributors, and just any sort of take home message you'd like our listeners to uh, come away with? I would,
1: yeah, love to say a huge thank you to everyone who discussed this paper with me. There were dozens and dozens of people who put up with endless emails about what they'd seen in their field site or whether they'd ever seen a certain croc species wondering through the forest so um huge thanks to everyone who answered my endless questions um yeah and it's kind of a, a thing to leave on, i would really encourage everyone to go and find out more about some of these weird species of crocodile um um and and, and if you can to support efforts going on to save them there's some really incredible research um and conservation work going on by people who are conserving some of these more unusual crocodiles in their, in their home countries. And so finding out about uh, what they're doing and supporting them is, um, I think, one of the best ways we can try and conserve crop diversity today.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. So a link to the paper will be available in the description of this podcast. As I said, it's due to come out as well as part of a special focus on animal functional traits that will be out in a few months time. Um, yeah, I'd just like to really thank Phoebe for, for the time that you've given us for this podcast. It's been fascinating and um, really do hope you'll keep flying the flag for, for your gorillas, and um, that we'll have lots more positive things to talk about in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me on and letting me witter about crocodiles.
0: <laughs> it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye.
1: Thank you. Bye.